welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. I'm back. And I am, I know I almost always say, I'm so excited to introduce my guest. This guest is one that I have been really hoping to bring to you. And I am so incredibly excited to be having this conversation with Sophie Strand. So if you don't already know about Sophie, Sophie is a poet and a writer with a focus on the history of religion and the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. Her poems and essays have appeared in numerous projects and publications, including the Dark Mountain Project and Poetry.org, and the magazine Spirituality and Health, Braided Way, Art Papers, and Entropy. She lives in the Hudson Valley of New York. Of, of New York. And the thing that she didn't meant that is not mentioned in this is that her masterpiece, masterpiece, the Madonna secret just came out and um, it is an epic, epic story, love story about Mary Magdalene and Jesus. And I have been anticipating this book, uh, like I pre-ordered it in October of last year. It is finally here. And I am beyond excited to be having this conversation. So Sophie, I just want to welcome you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It feels like such a long time coming. You know, our our paths have intersected and, and you supported this work when it was still in its genesis. So it feels very correct to be here. Thank you. You are so incredibly welcome. I my very first exposure to the stories of, you know, sort of the fictional story of Mary Magdalene was Moon Under Her Feet, which I you know, read that one, yeah. Oh, that was that one. I mean, I read it in the eight in the late 80s. And so it's it's one of the older ones, but in a way, this just feels like just such a perfect place for us to to be like. Your book is just so spectacular. But before we go into the book, let's start with at the beginning. Let's start with what was it like for young Sophie? Um, you know, you were saying people have called you an empath. I know you are a very sensitive, very creative, very magical, very remarkable human being. What was childhood like? What was life like? When did you realize that you were maybe not like the other, you know, not like the other reindeer? Well, I think my answer is a little tricky, which is that I underwent extreme sexual abuse at a pre-verbal age. And unfortunately, the number of people who've been through that is high. It is high. How much higher than we'd want it to believe. So I'm in no way extraordinary. And so on the one hand, I'd like to believe that my sensitivity to the aliveness of the world, to its um, entreaties, to its speaking is innate. But I also think in a lot of ways, it, you know, one of the things I always talk about is sensory gating. So we receive so much sensory stimuli on a second by second basis that if we tried to process it all, we couldn't function. Yes. The way our brains develop is they 
slowly learn what to gate out, how to predict reality so that it makes sense, that you can read a leaf against a sea of greenery, so you can identify a certain plant or predict weather patterns and navigate your life. And in environmentally resilient, responsive communities that you know humans lived in for much of our evolutionary past, that gating was ecologically embedded. Now it's mm-hmm. culturally gated. We gate out the aliveness of the world. It's an anthropocentric gating. So we gate out the fact that the, the smells of roses are teaching us something, that the animals have things to teach, to say to us, poetry. And I think one of the things that's hard to call good or bad about post-traumatic stress and the way that it destabilizes or changes our nervous system is it kept my sensory gating open a little bit wider. You know, when you feel like you're under threat or violence could happen, you need to keep all your senses open. Yes. One hand that taxes your nervous system and makes you more liable to develop a host of health issues. (laughs) But on the other hand, you're awake to the the beauty, the nourishment, the anguish of the world in a way that a lot of people inside our dominant culture are not. Yes. So I would say, on the one hand, I had parents who were animists, who mm-hmm. raised me in the mountains with, with, you know, rehabilitating possums and wild swans and herons. And they taught me that everything was alive and alive differently than me. And they respected my slowness, my strangeness, and they amplified it and celebrated it. But on the other hand, I think it's also a legacy of trauma. Mm-hmm. And then I think right now we're in a moment in time when trauma has been pathologized in such a way that it makes us feel like we are burdened with our hypersensitivity. But our hypersensitivity can be a superpower. Yes. Um, that's what I really believe. So that's my kind of strange both and answer. Mhm mhm. Well, and I love how I love how you are talking about the ways just I mean there's just so many pieces to unpack here because talking about just sort of the long story, not necessarily just your story, but talking about the long story in the sense of human evolution and how we went from being, the way I think of it is I always think of ourselves and what my guides will often say is you are a cell in the body of this earth. And we went from perceiving ourselves as cells in the body of this earth to this anthropocentric, like just everything is about like seeing through the lens of humanity and human experience. Mm -hmm. And like you said, like all of a sudden it's, it's like, the smell of the roses stops teaching us the smell. In in my case, I live right next to a horse pasture too. So the smell of the horse manure, you ah. know, and just, but just like all of the breezes, all of the information that is just coming to us that living in human civilization, we've, we've gotten less and less connected to. So it's like, there's a way in which we're talking about that kind of disconnection from all of the cues as a civilization or as a culture simultaneously to your own experience as somebody who through the experience of very, very early abuse, like it it kind of, like you said, it's like you have to be hypervigilant, but it also, I think I have a theory. One of the things that I've seen is that I think that ordeals act as initiations to us. Yeah. And, they open us up psychically. They open us up to receiving more information that in every single ordeal, there is also a gift. And like you said, 
there's a superpower that you get from that from that incredible sensitivity that can be used. I mean, it can be debilitating. Like you said, it can also really just like dysregulate our nervous systems to the point where we're dealing with sickness and all kinds of other things. But simultaneously, it also can become this remarkable gift that allows you to write this novel that is so embedded with sensory awareness. Yeah, I mean, I always want to slow down when we begin to map initiation onto violence and sexual abuse because or or any of these things because the truth is is most people don't survive initiation and yes. most people i know who've been offered those initiations did not make it to the other side and so we have to be careful i think about fetishizing them i also think that we we have an idea of initiation, which is if you're in an initiation, you don't know you're in it <laughs> and you don't know that you're going to survive. We have this kind of like boutique understanding of initiation in this culture that I'm always trying to problematize, but we're exactly on the same page, which is we live in a culture that tells us these wounds make us non-normative or make, make us useless. And I think that turning them into a gift, a gift and turning them, restoring them is a huge liberatory effort. So I, yeah, I have definitely tried to alchemize this experience as a way of reclaiming my life. Well, and I was really careful about using the word ordeal yeah. in the sense that I don't think it's net because I hear you completely about the way that we fetishize, but also, and also just like how so much of our experience and our perspective and our story about trauma is very much through this, like, like everything is kind of, is through this human lens, through this egoic human lens. And I really hear you about how we want to caution about this romanticization of abuse, this fetish, you know, this fetishizing of initiation. And I love that you are also, you drew out this other piece of it, which is not everybody survives an initiation. And the way that we have sort of this boutique idea of initiation, this idea, and also almost like this idea of, I watched the movie, I saw, I read the book about the initiation, I know what's going to happen now. And so therefore it's going to be easy. Yeah. And yet the true, and like you said, and yet real initiations are ordeals that we may or may not survive. And, and a I mean, I think that sadly, a lot of people physically don't necessarily die from those kinds of experiences, but they may not ever get to thrive. Like they may not ever get to go beyond, like they spend, there is something that, that the resilience does not allow them to bounce back. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking a lot. I'm very inspired by the work of Esther Perel. And I've thought about, you know, how she talks about those who survived, including her parents, the Holocaust. There were those who survived and then didn't live. And those were who survived and then claimed life again. And that the claiming of life again was very wedded to an erotic energy. And Eros is not being overcoupled with sex. Right. Reception, but Eros is being an appetite for life for sensuality, for, for being involved with other people in ways that are risky. 
Um, and so for me, I oftentimes think that reclaiming Eros is really that thing that gets you to the other side. And if I can give that to other people in a way that is not boxed in by compulsory he- compulsory heteronormativity, it might be the little gift that I can pass along, which is, you know, we are erotic beings, that we are only self through other. And if we can feel that, and it's, I love what you said, that we are a cell in the body of the earth, that we can feel that embrace on either side, suddenly everything is more possible. Yes, yes. You just said something really powerful. We are a self. It's like, I may, I may. We're only self through other. Yeah. We are only self through other. I'm paraphrasing one of my friends and favorite philosophers, Andreas Weber, who's a biologist Mm -hmm. who writes a lot about how you actually look at biology. It's steeply erotic that our bodies are recycling other matter. Every time we breathe in, we are wetting our bodies to the world, metabolically looping and rebuilding ourselves with otherness. And for me, that is spirituality right there. Mm-hmm. The minute we get attached to individuality, we stop building our very bodies. Yes, yes. Well, and even the way we perceive ourselves, we are colonies. Yeah. We are we are colonies. We are this this idea of individuality, this idea of singularity, this idea of I am separate from everything else. I mean, it's sad how little it serves us. And then also even the the siloing of eroticism, the way that we as a culture have taken the idea of the erotic, of the sensuous, and have turned it into, like, turned it into every, anything that's talking about life force. And from that erotic standpoint is, is considered sexual. And therefore, you know, I mean, I think about one of my heroes is Wilhelm Reich, who, um, you know, who came up with the idea of orgone and which is the life force energy. And it has a set, it, an erotic component to it. And he was talking about something so much greater than like this heteronormative idea of sex being what Eros is. And yet he got so much flack for even suggesting that sexual energy or erotic energy is part of the life force and was pretty much like driven out of Europe and ended up in um, in Rangeley, Maine, <laughs> of all places. So I'm really hearing you and I believe that a big part of this novel is actually about the retrieving of that erotic energy as just the through line that exists in every single moment of our existence. Yeah. 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 And that Jesus's real lessons are embodied and erotic and anarchic. And when empire co-ops the story of the man it murdered, it erases the body and it erases that innate erotic intelligence. And so, you know, I wanted to give Jesus his body back and his wife back that if one of his main epithets is the bridegroom, any second temple period Palestinian Jew would have known he was referencing that, you know, polyspecies, sensual romp of the Song of Songs, that you have to ask, where's the bride? Where's the body? Um, so that has long been my my desire is to, to body the Gospels again, to oh. stick mind and matter, spirit and earth back together in some way. 
Well, and you just said another thing. I mean, this conversation is going to be one of those things where, as you know, like there are just every single that you are dropping jewels in every single sentence that you are speaking. And, you know, when you were saying this is a man like that, his story has been co-opted by the empire that destroyed him. Yeah. I'd love to actually, for those of, I mean, you and I are steeped in a community where the word empire is something we we talk about all the time. But for those who are not connected to Way of the Rose, those who are not connected to your, you know, to this idea of empire, would you define empire for the listeners? Define empire. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know that's a, that's 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 a, a small order. So. Here's a way of looking at it, which is for most of human history, people lived in relatively small communities that were often nomadic, which is you followed the food by seasons. You only ate as much as you could gather in a day. Sometimes you exchanged, you know, people with other tribes and, you know, kind of wove your genetics together to remix things and keep things plush and interesting. And, you know, but there's a moment where humans shift into sessile stationary living and they start to hoard food. Um, and they hoard, and when you hoard food, you have to protect it from other people. So suddenly people are warring. There are a lot of different theories about how these different stages happen, why they happen, what they mean. And I don't think there's one solid answer, one complete grand unifying theory. No, but we do know that even after civilization, even after cities were built up and we see organized religion with, you know, uh, priests and we, we, we see people creating art and we see language and writing, even after that, we still have a long time of partnership cultures, as Rihanna Eisler calls them. So cultures where the art that exists, the material culture shows an extreme reverence for animals and plants and goddesses. And there's not a lot of imagery about warfare, not a lot of imagery about death or heroic male individuals. There's a real shift after the Bronze Age into dominator cultures. So dominator cultures are cultures that don't stay in one place. What they do is they reach out and they co-opt other cultures. Mm -hmm. So empire is a culture that it kind of acts like a cancer cell, which is it grows too much and it takes over other bodies and co-ops them into its body. So an empire will go into a culture and say, I want your food and your resources, but I don't want to honor you. And I want to make you my slaves. And I want to use you to produce food for me. So usually an empire is oftentimes called a commercialized agricultural state, which is it takes other over other countries oftentimes syncretically fuses their religions with it, its religion mm-hmm. and uses them to produce its goods. Um, mm-hmm. And Rome, of course, is the epitome of that. Rome is the really the first grand empire that does this on a giant scale and will go into other cultures, co-opt their gods and goddesses, co-opt their land, unland the peasantry, tax them, um, oppress them. Um, and so empire is very much about dominating. Just as we see human beings begin to dominate the environment, human beings begin to dominate each other. Um, and so the Roman Empire was um, had overtaken um, Jerusalem and northern um, Palestine, um, Galilee during that time period. But the people, the Jews of Second Temple period Palestine had known sequential imperial rule. 
by many different empires. They've known exile to Babylon. They've known genocide. They'd had their, their faith in a just God really questioned, really troubled. So what by the time they get to the oppression of the Roman Empire, these are people who have known trauma after trauma after trauma. I'm just nodding as we are talking. And, and from that idea of knowing trauma after trauma after trauma, one might imagine that that in some ways does allow for that sensory, the lack of gating in a way, like as a culture. Yeah. I mean, I oftentimes say that we see the bifurcation of mind and matter in a variety of different philosophical traditions and spiritual hermetic traditions after the Bronze Age collapse. So Mm -hmm. there were droughts, genocide, empires fell 2500 BCE, roughly. Mm -hmm. And I oftentimes say that when we're traumatized, we disassociate mind and body to protect ourselves. And I oftentimes say that the cultures that that came through the bottleneck of the Bronze Age collapse inspired the um the platonic forms of socrates that we see the the split between the ideal forms and the body the sophia who comes down to the brute world of materialism and gnosticism and we see this kind of disassociation on a culture-wide scale and so i think of the people who were oppressed by the roman empire from europe down into the mediterranean basin as having all sorts of different survival mechanisms Some of them Mm -hmm. were wide open. Some of them are way too sensorily primed. Some of them are disassociated. And all of those mechanisms are understandable. So we can have empathy about all of the creative ways people were trying to survive. I've thought a lot about just like even the knowledge of birth control, the knowledge of like we have so many so many, so much more avail or autonomy, especially as women in in uh. female bodies, now than we ever did before, and like even some of the sort of feeling so powerless, feeling so helpless. I'm I'm not necessarily. I'm trying to think of how to articulate this, but I was realizing at one point I started thinking even the kind of schism around sexuality, in some ways, is like a representation of feeling out of control or not feeling like not necessarily having autonomy about a choice. And therefore, like the way that we make certain that we set up rules, we make certain things bad in order to try to control stuff because of that feeling so helpless. Well, yeah. One of the things that I always say is I think we're in a right now, we're in a moment of absolute uncertainty climatologically, socially, politically. And it doesn't surprise me that we've become hyper fixated on binaries, on stable values, on identity, on bioessentialism, on like correct embodiment. Who's a girl? Because when you're really scared and your world doesn't make any sense, you need to project a system of certainty. And so it makes sense that that's what's happening right now. It doesn't make it good. It makes it very dangerous. But, you know, I always say, like, we need to get develop a higher threshold for ambiguity before we project these dualisms. Can we begin to use that muscle of uncertainty of staying with the trouble of, of living the question, as Rilke said? And I do think that one of the really valuable things about many of the different, you know, 
kind of esoteric Jewish traditions of the time period is they were traditions of staying with the trouble, of saying God has put us through the worst possible violence. It is so hard to weave that back into our understanding of what is sacred. And yet we're going to stay with this. We're going to sit with it. We're going to feel into it. And so I would say that we could, when we're looking for robust ways to navigate incredible violence, we can look to the biodiversity of different Jewish practices that were creatively trying to survive under empire at the time of Jesus. Jesus just represents one note of them. And in fact, many, you know, Jesus scholars have said an unsuccessful one, um, like not a fully realized one. But yeah, there were a lot of different teachers of that at that time period trying to say, how do we make sense of a world that is ruptured, a God that is not showing up in the way that we expected him to? Mm. Well, and I mean, more than 2000 years later here, we still are asking the same question. And I'm struck by sort of the microcosm and the macrocosm of this in that we're talking about the greater picture, but then also talking about the our own individual experience of how do we live with the mystery and how do we navigate this? And like, I, I've always thought of, it's like, well, actually when I was in seminary and I studied faith development, there's as well as human development, the need for binary, the need for like, um, sort of like magical thinking is a stage that human beings go through. It's something that we all, we all need to understand things and like the boundaries of like, this is good, this is bad, but there comes a point in our maturity, where we do get to live within that both and, and where we come to what is called universalizing faith, where we start understanding that it is much faster than our human psyche is capable of grasping, that our ego is certainly capable of grasping, and that we do dwell in this great mystery. And it's uncomfortable for humans to sit in the mystery. It's I don't think we're taught how to sit in the mystery. No, and yet it's the most nourishing. You know, the mystery is the darkness. It's the matter. It's the mother. Yeah. It's the soil, womb, and tomb of all life. Yeah. And if we don't go back to that dark well, how are we to have the sustenance to continue as a species? Um, you know, we have to go back to the uncertainty. And I think actually uncertainty can be a profound liberatory moment, which is if you're living a story that wants you dead, that's a tragedy that wants you defeated, having a moment when you say, I think I've lost the plot. I think I don't know is an escape valve. It's an open window. Mm -hmm. And I think as a culture, we need to open those windows where we say, I'm not sure I have the solution. I don't think we can techno-narcissistic fix our way out of this. And I also think we need to just stop for a second. Yes. yes. Moment of humility. Yes. Well, and it it seems to me that in some ways the early, you know, the onset of the pandemic, we were almost there. That there was this point where we almost all stopped. We we did. We came to a grinding halt for a couple of weeks where we stopped and we looked at things and we started to reevaluate and and then but it's been so fascinating seeing the way that our protective mechanisms and our, I mean, I don't know, like life wants to survive. Cancer has an investment in surviving. Parasites 
have an investment in surviving. And it seems like the life form that this that empire has taken is not going down without a fight for sure. Like it's invested in surviving, even if it's at the expense of its host, which is us. Yeah. Yeah. And life will go on. Yes. We not be part of it. And, you know, me and my mother often talk about my favorite paleo anthropologist, Thomas Halliday says, nature is not nostalgic. You know, life has gone down to almost nothing many, many times. And then it fills back in those ecological niches and it explores that, you know, what we're really doing is we're, we're taking ourselves down and a lot of other species with us. Yes. Something yes. else will come after but we have a choice about whether or not we want to reduce the harm we're creating before the next chapter begins. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, we are at such an incredibly crucial turning point as a species. And, and I love how you're like, we just need to stop. We need to acknowledge that we've lost the plot and maybe also let go of some of the hubris that thinks that we know the answers as human beings. We don't. I know. I mean, I think one of my collaborators and favorite thinkers, I don't know if you know the work of Bio Komolafe. No. Um, I, I highly recommend checking out his work. Um, but he has an idea of post-activism, which is that our activism is so solutionist that it mm -hmm. actually ends up re-articulating the problem. It's urgent. He says the times are urgent. We must slow down. And I really, that's yes. one favorite reminders, which is, you know, the faster we move, the more mistakes we make. We've shown that we have a very bad handle on how to create resilient ecosystems. And so maybe we should listen more. We need to learn how to listen to the our elders. And our elders are the stone, the trees, the mountains, the oceans. Yes. The inhalations and exhalations that keep the dynamic homeostasis of the biosphere in order. Um, like, can we can we take a decade to listen? Can we take a decade to listen? I have a concrete example of of the the power of slowing down that's very human. But back in the day when I was working, I was still working as a tattooer. I would have certain days where it was just chaos, like where the phone would be ringing, people would be coming in and out. It was just one of those days where it was like, no matter how I, no matter what, I felt like I was behind the eight ball and I would find myself hurrying. I'd find myself getting sucked into the sense of urgency and this hectic energy, and I'd be swirling around. And this wisdom would sort of jump in, come into my head and just this voice would be like, Jennifer, slow down. And I would just take a moment and I would pause and I would just completely stop. And I would basically decelerate so that instead of going at 100 miles an hour, I was going at like 30 miles an hour. And I would just take, I would just allow myself, I was like, this will get done in the time it needs to get done, but I am not going to rush at all. I'm going to move slower. I'm going to move more deliberately. I'm going to really be mindful of this. And every single time I did that, I would sink into the zone and I would be able to do what I was here to do in a way that if I had kept rushing and hurrying and being sucked into the urgency, I never would have gotten there. And so I can honestly say from my own personal experience that every single time I feel frantic, slowing down has been the solution that allows me to navigate whatever it is that's coming next. So 
I agree a hundred percent. Like slowing down is such an important thing. And yet we live in a culture that is so just, we live in a cancer that is so utterly invested in this idea of, of 10xing every single month, every single year, like grow, 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 move, 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 faster, faster, faster. And yet it defies everything. We're so wedded to this linear neo-Darwinian narrative that everything is individuating or optimizing and growing and bettering. And the truth is that life is cyclical. We need moments of decay, of rot, to feed the continuance of life. Yes. We need to allow ourselves moments of rotting and decay, of making ourselves useless to the culture. I often say, like, how are you going to make yourself useless to capitalism today? Mm. Um, and, you know, as someone who has been sick, I've had to actually realize that a lot of, a lot of New Age spirituality is still infected with a productivity and an optimiz optimization narrative of capitalism. Absolutely. Always healing, spending your whole paycheck, all of your time on healing, getting better, striving towards a well body, like some garden of Eden, you know, yes. that you've been thrown out of by always working on yourself. Yeah. And I think yeah. I want to say how take a healing jubilee, you know, the Sabbath, which is you say, even if the work is not done, the work is enough. Let the let the fields lie fallow. Let the dirt regenerate. You know, we all need jubilees. We need Sabbaths in our life where we say the work is enough. Let yes. us just sit in the shade and be soft animals because we are. We We forget that we are organisms that move with lunar cycles, with seasonal cycles, that we need time to just shake and tremble and sleep and breathe and touch each other. We are little soft animals. Mm, this is the second reference to soft animals that has come through today, just <laughs> interestingly, because I was working with somebody earlier and we were talking about the line in the Mary Oliver poem, the soft animal of your flesh, love what it loves. And I was saying to her that that's my favorite line in that poem, because it just the idea of just letting ourselves be soft animals is so incredibly important. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back and just pull out your comment about like what I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal journey with allowing yourself to be like, to not be contributing to like, what was the journey of surrendering to your health, surrendering to your body. I think I'm still very much on the journey. And I yeah. don't think I have anything figured out. I'm finishing a experimental memoir right now called The Body is Doorway, Healing Beyond Hope, Healing Beyond the Human, which will be out sometime in 2025. Ooh. It really says what healing, what joy is available to me beyond my skin silhouette and my atomized individuality. If the, If my disease is incurable or terminal, if I can't integrate or complete my trauma, what more feral ways of enjoying my embodiment are there available to me outside of these very limited narratives of diagnosis and cure and betterment? And I think for me, it's a it's a daily 
questioning, which is I want to feel better. And if there are ways that I can feel better and experience more joy in my body, I am going to grab them. But I also want to live now, live urgently, not not with urgency, but with with full vigor. Um, I don't want to defer my life. I want to suck the juice out of it now, knowing that nothing is promised. And I do think that healing is part of this deferred idea that non-normative bodies are not deserving of joy and pleasure. They need to fix themselves before they can enter back into that. And I want to kind of call bullshit on that. I'm not sure why. Call crap on that. No, Um, you can swear. That's completely fine. (laughs) Yes. you know, you don't have to wait till you're fixed to suck the juice out of life and to break the rules. And, you know, as sick people, I think one of the things that I'm always I, I, I do courses for people who are navigating mental health issues or chronic illness, where we kind of compost all these ideas together. And one of them is that when you're sick, you have to write your own hagiography, that people expect this the sick person to be a saint to be eating as clean as possible, to be doing everything they can to just be the best person. You know, if you see a sick person eating sugar, smoking a cigarette or, you know, having an affair, you're like, ooh, well, they probably deserve being sick then. And so I want to always say, actually, sick people are complex and they are allowed the full breadth of mistakes and experiences just like you. And we need to let them do that um, and begin to... um, say that there's no such thing as a, a sick saint. We're all, we're all sick and we're well, all, yeah. And also there's an aspect of the culture idea of money and health are virtue, are virtue based. Right. And yeah. this idea that somebody is sick or somebody is fat because Aubrey Gordon, who wrote this. I love Aubrey Gordon. Oh, oh I adore Aubrey Gordon. And, you know, one of like, I mean, she had some woman walk up to her in the grocery store and remove her cantaloupe melon out of her out of her cart and say, you're eating too much sugar. It's like and the thing is that from what I've seen and from, you know, doing the work I've done as in talking to a lot of people about their lives and their experiences and being a healer, it's like whether you have a body that is resilient and endures and somehow manages to not get super sick or not is a complete and utter crapshoot in a lot of ways. We attribute there's so much, there's so much like egocentric assumption and within within sort of the spiritual communities of virtue being equivalent to cure and wealth. And mm-hmm. that if we are, and that it's like instead of having, like, what if we could have profound mercy? For ourselves and and for other people, when the body, quote, unquote, betrays us, when everything we try does not work, because that's the thing is like you get these healthy people who look at a sick person and are like, hey, have you tried this thing? Have you tried this thing? Have you done this special diet? But it's sort of like a lot of times I think there's this assumption that the person who is struggling or suffering has not beaten down every single door and attempted in every single way to find an answer, but happens to have a body that is manifesting or expressing the dysfunction of this planet through itself in a way that some people just are spared that reality or that experience. 
Cheers to everything you just said. And thank you. I mean, I can't tell you how many times a day someone will recommend I do something when I didn't ask for help. And I tried about 10 years ago. Um, And the assumption that when you're sick, you're not trying everything is just, it's so, it's full of so much hubris. Um, So I really appreciate noting that. I also want to say something I always say to people who, like me, have tried a lot of things that haven't worked is, Right there with you, honey. (laughs) Everything happened we have. Our very hand began as a mistake. That there's, you know, if we look at evolution, evolution is not teleological. It's not, I mean, maybe it is, but you know, the general assumption is that things happen by mistake and then they perfectly fit into an ecological niche and then they persist because weirdly, in this kind of offhand way, they promote a species survival. But the first being to have that mistake that actually becomes the way a species survives looks like a glitch. Mm-hmm. And that being on the front lines of evolution always looks like disability, always looks like being non-normative. And I always want to say like, it's really painful and tricky and hard being on that, that edge, but you're there. Your body is in a toxic stew and it is creatively trying to figure out how it can navigate that. You know, I I also say that, you know, being well right now is not necessarily a good predictor of your ability to survive what's about to happen. And that, in fact, people who are really sick understand how to expect uncertainty and then collaborate with it. They're physically, somatically, improvisationally gifted. They know how to improvise and say, oh, that happened. That was not part of my plan. I know that that usually happens. Okay, I'm just going to dance. And so I actually think one thing I always like to offer to those of us who feel like we failed is actually you have a really good understanding of how to improvise with uncertainty. And you can offer that to people who are well and bring them along with you. Yes. Well, and um, it's interesting how people who have been through hardship often do not get as leveled by circumstances changing as people who've had like these lived these charmed lives. And I mean, even in terms of learning, um, it's interesting to me, like the people that I know who were like straight A students as children and who never like they got all the way, maybe even got all the way through college and they just kept doing like they could, they just kept like excelling and excelling when they finally come up against a real challenge they don't have the resilience or the self-confidence or the ability to understand that this is part of mistakes are part of life, that adaptation is part of life because they're used to just acing it through. Whereas yeah. those of us who are, you know, differently abled, you know, neurodiverse have different ways of perceiving the world. Like we've been adapting and having to find like workarounds from the time we were teeny, teeny, tiny, which allows us to. So when we come up against a wall, we're much less likely to be just devastated by the wall. Yeah, we oftentimes say it comes down. I, this is sometimes how I talk about like the disadvantage of being white and male is that you're actually not very athletically primed. You're not in shape. Because mm-hmm. you, don't up, you don't have to work out that much and Mm-mm. figure it out. You don't have a lot of obstacles. So your musculature, your physical resilience to deal with these things is not that prime. But women, queer, femme, disabled people, 
we have had to go to the gym. We've had to work out all those muscles. So we're much better at handling these things. And I think it's less about using that as a marker of specialness and more about sharing it with the people who have had kind of lucky lives. And now we're having, you know, I look at a lot of people this summer who are surprised by the flooding and the fires and the smog. And I say, if you've been paying attention, you would have felt this 15 years ago. And, you know, the global South has been negotiating this in their very bodies on a day-to-day basis for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're surprised by it now, it shows that your life has been very lucky. But instead of using that as some self-righteous place to put myself in where I've known, it's more inviting people to the table and saying that this is really scary and maybe you don't have the tools. Let's pool our tools together about how we're going to negotiate this. Yes, yes, yes. Well, and I love how you're speaking about instead of I mean, in some ways, the I'm special is still part of empire. It's still part of this idea of is still part of this, you know, commodification of everything. And this idea of I'm, yeah, just that. And I love the way that you're talking about it as like, what if this can all be an invitation? What if this can all be an invitation to the table? What if this can all be and validation, acknowledgement? Yeah, it is really, really, really scary to be witnessing this and to be experiencing this and to be looking at what does this mean? And which comes back to the piece you were speaking about earlier around this idea of being able to hold the space for uncertainty while maintaining our sense of faith, while maintaining our relationship with the divine. Because, and not attributing, you know, because I hear, I mean, I hear so many people One of the questions a lot of people, like I've heard people ask over the years is how can there be a God or how can there be anything divine if there are, if there's struggle, if there's suffering, if there's, you know, if there's misery on the planet, like that somehow the divine is in charge of like, like it's just candy land 24 seven. And I love how you are talking about this. And in many ways, the Madonna secret is talking about that embracing of the richness in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of turbulence, in the midst of all kinds of struggle, that there still is that richness and that savoring and that I choose this relationship with something greater than myself. Yeah, and that we aren't the authors and we aren't the only beings that are special and precious to the divine. And that good is always perspectival. It's always subjective. And what's good for us has been very bad for the planet. So our idea of justice is is blinkered by our our humanity. <laughs> um, we need to understand. We I oftentimes say we need to believe in an animate everything that pricks and stings and eats and decays and digests and puts cells together and does. You know, life wants to get involved with other life, and sometimes that can look weird and violent and strange in ways that are too big for our umwelt, our little human sensory apparatus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to the very beginning of this conversation about gating and about the loss, you know, that there is sort of the irony is on one hand, there needs to be some sense of distinguishing in order to understand what is, but simultaneously, 
And I actually believe, I mean, this is, I believe that one of the reasons why so many people are awakening to their sensitivity, so many people are becoming more and more empathic is because I do believe that this is, um, this is part of the, the evolution of us as a species that in order, in order to survive, we have to start feeling more. And in order, we have to start feeling the impact that we're making on the planet. We have to start feeling the impact we make on other people. And in many ways, it's like getting the blinders off. We've been so shuttered in our human experience for so long that we kind of, it's like we've gated too many senses. And I think that there are those of us, you, me, and so many other people who are listening, as well as so many other people on the planet who are like we don't have as many gates we don't have as much distinguishing like we don't distinguish in the same way and yet it is allowing us to understand our relationship in the family of things in a much broader context yeah and 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 it becomes an invitation to how do we welcome everybody into the family how do we welcome everybody like how do we all of us to recognize ourselves as cells in the body and part of a family of all things, not just human, the human experience. That is the question. I mean, I yeah. think we all draw on our specific abilities, you know, our abilities to have conversations, to write stories, to make art, to make music, to, to create community and to hold events, to dance, that we're going to use all the tools we have to try and bring people into the into the wider web of kin, I think. Yeah. let's make it a party let's make make it a party our collective healing a party doesn't have to be hard work it can be and a coming home yeah Sophie I told you I would say this at a certain point I can't believe how fast the time has gone by (laughs) you and I could talk for hours about this because um I mean I'm imagining you and I have both spent many many an hour like sitting somewhere just contemplating all of this and um I could talk with you for ages and we are getting to that point in the conversation where we're coming towards the top of the hour. So I want to be sure to give you a chance to share like what, what else, what feels like I really need to say this to right here, right now. Well, I think that what I've been sharing with people recently is the story of Scheherazade, which is the frame narrative for the 1001 Nights of the Arabian Tales. Yep. So that is the vizier's daughter is the is married to the king who kills marries a woman and kills her every night. She knows that going into it. So she knows that she has to have some kind of cunning or plan to keep her life. And she does that by telling a story that's so compelling, but doesn't quite finish that the king keeps her alive for another night. And of course, there's deep patriarchy baked into this. But you know, a biodiversity, a forest of stories, an ecosystem of stories sprouts out of that adrenaline-fueled storytelling as emergency. That people really, a lot of people understand this, the high stakes moment when you have to de-escalate your violent spouse, when you have to convince a stranger not to hurt you, when you are a Black woman in a hospital trying to give birth and trying to get a doctor to take you seriously so that you don't die. Storytelling is a way of staying alive. It is survival mechanism. And so I want to say, like, my life has been saved by certain stories. And I want to invite everyone into the effort of saying, maybe your time is limited. Maybe it is brief. And don't waste your time on things that feel cool or trendy or might get you an MFA. 
write the story that is an emergency because if it keeps you alive, it will keep another person alive. So yeah, that's my one invitation. Well, and I, um, I just want to acknowledge something that I've read that you have written about the book, about writing the Madonna secret, that the motive behind this was that with your, with the limit, the, the time limits that you have, not knowing when your expiration, you know, not knowing how much more time you had, saying that this was the one thing, this was the one book that you had to write. And I'm sort of struck by in some ways, like, you know, this is the story that <laughs> this is your thousand and one nights, like just that kind of keeping the story going and keeping it interesting enough that it keeps us here. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I had a story that I thought I would put off until I was old and had degrees and had all the esteem and craft to really pull it off. And when I exited college, I was very ill and it looked like I might decline very fast. I mean, I have a condition that's degenerative and incurable and can speed up with some kind of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. I thought, I can't put this off. I have to do it now. So I want everyone to kind of work with, not with the, with the urgency and emergency of capitalism that says grind yourself to the ground, you know, create create things for other people, like, like in such a way that it destroys you. And, and, and more the urgency of saying like, your life is precious. Use it as an altar towards what you love. Your life is precious. Use it as an altar towards what you love. Yeah. Oh, Sophie. You guys, if I haven't made it clear, go out and buy this book. Like go out and, and also the flowering wand, which is Sophie's oh, first friend. book. Yeah. And, you know, subscribe to her Substack and read the amazing things that she's writing. Um, Sophie is, has some really remarkable insight and like just her, her words are food for the soul in the best way possible. So what I always love to do at this point in time is a little exercise in time travel, because I believe that podcasts are kind of timeless. They exist outside of time. They will be heard for years and years in the future. But also, I believe we can broadcast messages backwards in time. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to broadcast a message. We're going to go, we're going to time travel back to a younger Sophie. And we're going to share what she really needs to hear. So I've got two questions for you. What age are you? Like, what is the, so who, how old is the Sophie? Who is the Sophie we're going back to? And what does she really need to hear? What are we going to give her that's going to give her what she, like, what's the lifeline or oxygen that she's needing that we're going to give her? I'm going to go back to Sophie in Jerusalem at age 16 on this day. This day? On this day, which is why. Oh my God, I'm getting chills. 2010. So that's 14 years ago. Yeah. I landed in Israel to see to stay with family and got sick the day before I left. And by the time I was in Israel, my whole system was falling apart. And, by, and I had such an intense stitching of illness, history, family, life, pivot point in this strange land. Um, and I think I was seated with a story there when I got sick. And I want to say to that 16-year-old who's beginning to feel terror, 
who's beginning to feel that her plot is dissolving, that the life that she was promised, the healthy body, the romance, the frivolity, the teenage years is dissolving. I want to say to her, it's important that you don't know what happens next, but you will survive it. And you will write books as long and as detailed as the books that have kept you alive. I want to say to her, like, trust it, that there will see moments where everything will be ruptured and desaturated of meaning and just take it hour by hour because you're going to get there. Mm. Thank you for that. That's a really powerful spell. And on this day, I actually, when we went into this, I thought like, what an intense day. It's like my really wild anniversary when I got sick. Wow. It's funny. There's one other thing I wanted to share with you because and it just that I realized as I picked up the book and I started to read it, read it, I realized that even though I, quote, know the story, unquote, I realized my heart was going to get broken over and over and over again as I read this book. And that there's this way of that, you know, just kind of that we can't necessarily know the story, even if we think we do that we're still, you know, we're still going to go back and experience the story again and again in a million different ways. So thank you so much for just for sharing your words. So final question, how do people get in touch with you? Well, first, I just want to say that this has been very magical and special to meet you. Um, Mm -hmm. And we could talk and ho- we could talk for hours. And I hope we do. I hope so, too. I'm like, I have so many questions for you that are completely separate than this interview. I'll have to find some other meander in time. Yeah. Um, people can find me. I have a sub stack. I post yeah. lots of free content and then some that's paid works in progress for people who are able to support that community. Yeah. Um, I'm a starving artist, so I always want to make both available. Yes. I'm on Instagram at Cosmogony. I have books available, The Flowering Wand, The Madonna Secret, um, and bother me. My email is on my website and I'm slow to respond, but I think best when I'm in conversation with people. So I always invite that. Awesome. 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 And I mean, your Instagram, all of your social, like it's it's just, it's so rich. There was a post you put out a couple weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, where you talked about just like that being embraced into the um into the ocean of life i think it was like i'm mis i'm i'm paraphrasing you but just like that idea of sort of like feeling ourselves and our fear and our trauma contained within something so much greater than ourselves than being caught up in the individuality I mean, you just, there is so much richness to what you offer. So you guys check out Sophie. Um, all of the the book links will be in the show notes as well as all of Sophie's social and everything. And like I said, go buy the book. <laughs> Please go buy the book. You will be glad you did. Sophie, thank you so much. This has been so rich, so delicious, so good. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. 
Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.